Chapter Two of the Poison Belt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Poison Belt, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Chapter Two, entitled "The Tide of Death." As we crossed the hall, the telephone bell rang, and we were the involuntary auditors of Professor Challenger's end of the ensuing dialogue. I say we, but no one within a hundred yards could have failed to hear the booming of that monstrous voice, which reverberated through the house. His answers lingered in my mind. "'Yes, yes, of course, it is I.' "'Yes, certainly, the Professor Challenger, the famous Professor, who else?' "'Of course, every word of it. Otherwise I should not have written it.' "'I shouldn't be surprised.' There is every indication of it. Within a day or so at the furthest. Well, I can't help that, can I? Very unpleasant, no doubt, but I rather fancy it will affect more important people than you. There is no use whining about it. No, I couldn't possibly. You must take your chance. That's enough, sir. Nonsense! I have something more important to do than to listen to such twaddle. He shut off with a crash and led us upstairs into a large airy apartment which formed his study. On the great mahogany desk, seven or eight unopened telegrams were lying. Really, he said as he gathered them up, I begin to think that it would save my correspondent's money if I were to adopt a telegraphic address. Possibly Noah Rotherfield would be the most appropriate. As usual, when he made an obscure joke, he leaned against the desk and bellowed in a paroxysm of laughter, his hands shaking so that he could hardly open the envelopes. "'Noah! <laughs> Noah!' he gasped with a face of beetroot, while Lord John and I smiled in sympathy, and Summerlee, like a dyspeptic goat, wagged his head in sardonic disagreement. Finally, Challenger, still rumbling and exploding, began to open his telegrams. The three of us stood in the bow window and occupied ourselves in admiring the magnificent view. It was certainly worth looking at. The road in its gentle curves had really brought us to a considerable elevation, seven hundred feet, as we afterwards discovered. Challenger's house was on the very edge of the hill, and from its southern face, in which was the study window, one looked across the vast stretch of the Weald to where the gentle curves of the South Downs formed an undulating horizon. In a cleft of the hills a haze of smoke marked the position of Lewes. Immediately at our feet there lay a rolling plain of heather, with the long vivid green stretches of the Crowborough golf course, all dotted with the players. A little to the south, through an opening in the woods, we could see a section of the main line from London to Brighton, in the immediate foreground, under our very noses, was a small enclosed yard, in which stood the car which had brought us from the station. An ejaculation from Challenger caused us to turn. He had read his telegrams, and had arranged them in a little methodical pile upon his desk. His broad, rugged face, or as much of it as was visible over the matted beard, was still deeply flushed, and he seemed to be under the influence of some strong excitement. "'Well, gentlemen,' he said, in a voice as if he were addressing a public meeting, 
This is indeed an interesting reunion, and it takes place under extraordinary, I may say, unprecedented circumstances. May I ask if you observed anything upon your journey from town? The only thing which I observed, said Summerlee with a sour smile, was that our young friend here has not improved in his manners during the years that have passed. I am sorry to state that I have had to seriously complain of his conduct in the train, and I should be wanting in frankness if I did not say that it has left a most unpleasant impression in my mind. "'Well, well, we all get a bit prosy sometimes,' said Lord John. "'The young fellow meant no real harm.' After all, he's an international, so if he takes a half an hour to describe a game of football, he has more right to do it than most folk. Half an hour to describe a game? I cried indignantly. Why, it was you that took half an hour with some long-winded story about a buffalo. Professor Summerlee will be my witness. I can hardly judge which of you was the most utterly wearisome, said Summerlee. I declare to you, Challenger, that I never wish to hear of football or of buffaloes so long as I live. I have never said one word to-day about football, I protested. Lord John gave a shrill whistle, and Summerlee shook his head sadly. So early in the day, too, said he, it is indeed deplorable, as I sat there in sad but thoughtful silence— "'In silence!' cried Lord John. "'Why, you were doing a music-hall turn of imitations all the way. More like a runaway gramophone than a man.' Summerlee drew himself up in bitter protest. "'You are pleased to be facetious, Lord John,' said he with a face of vinegar. "'Why, dash it all, this is clear madness!' cried Lord John. Each of us seems to know what the others did, and none of us knows what he did himself. Let's put it all together from the first. We got into a first-class smoker. That's clear, ain't it? Then we began to quarrel over friend Challenger's letter in the Times. Oh, you did, did you? rumbled our host, his eyelids beginning to droop. You said, Summerlee, that there was no possible truth in his contention. Dear me! said Challenger, puffing out his chest and stroking his beard. No possible truth. I seem to have heard the words before. And may I ask with what arguments the great and famous Professor Summerlee proceeded to demolish the humble individual who had ventured to express an opinion upon a matter of scientific possibility? Perhaps before he exterminates that unfortunate non-entity, he will condescend to give some reasons for the adverse views which he has formed. He bowed and shrugged and spread open his hands, as he spoke with his elaborate and elephantine sarcasm. "'The reason was simple enough,' said the dogged Summerlee. "'I contended that if the ether surrounding the earth was so toxic in one quarter that it produced dangerous symptoms, it was hardly likely that we three in the railway carriage should be entirely unaffected. The explanation only brought uproarious merriment from Challenger. He laughed until everything in the room seemed to rattle and quiver. <laughs> Our worthy Summerlee is, not for the first time, somewhat out of touch with the facts of the situation. 
said he at last, mopping his heated brow. Now, gentlemen, I cannot make my point better than by detailing to you what I have myself done this morning. You will the more easily condone any mental aberration upon your own part, when you realize that even I have had moments when my balance has been disturbed. We have had for some years in this household a housekeeper, one Sarah, with whose second name I have never attempted to burden my memory. She is a woman of a severe and forbidding aspect, prim and demure in her bearing, very impassive in her nature, and never known within our experience to show signs of any emotion. As I sat alone at my breakfast, Mrs. Challenger is in the habit of keeping her room of a morning, it suddenly entered my head that it would be entertaining and instructive to see whether I could find any limits to this woman's imperturbability. I devised a simple but effective experiment. Having upset a small vase of flowers which stood in the centre of the cloth, I rang the bell and slipped under the table. She entered, and seeing the room empty, imagined that I had withdrawn to the study. As I had expected, she approached and leaned over the table to replace the vase. I had a vision of a cotton stocking and an elastic-sided boot. Protruding my head, I sank my teeth into the calf of her leg. The experiment was successful beyond belief. For some moment she stood paralyzed, staring down at my head. Then with a shriek she tore herself free and rushed from the room. I pursued her with some thoughts of an explanation, but she flew down the drive, and some minutes afterwards I was able to pick her out with my field-glasses, travelling very rapidly in a southwesterly direction. I tell you the anecdote for what it is worth. I drop it into your brains, and await its germination. Is it illuminative? Has it conveyed anything to your minds? What do you think of it, Lord John? Lord John shook his head gravely. "'You'll be getting into serious trouble some of these days if you don't put a brake on,' said he. "'Perhaps you have some observation to make, Summerlee.' "'You should drop all work instantly, Challenger, and take three months in a German watering-place,' said he. "'Profound! Profound!' cried Challenger. "'Now, my young friend,' Is it possible that wisdom may come from you where your seniors have so signally failed? And it did. I say it with all modesty, but it did. Of course it all seems obvious enough to you who know what occurred, but it was not so very clear when everything was new. But it came upon me suddenly with the full force of absolute conviction. "'Poison!' I cried. Then— even as I said the word, my mind flashed back over the whole morning's experiences, past Lord John with his buffalo, past my own hysterical tears, past the outrageous conduct of Professor Summerlee, to the queer happenings in London, the row in the park, the driving of the chauffeur, the quarrel at the oxygen warehouse. Everything fitted suddenly into its place. "'Of course!' I cried again. It is poison. We are all poisoned. Exactly, said Challenger, rubbing his hands. We are all poisoned. Our planet has swum into the poison belt of ether, and is now flying deeper into it at the rate of some millions of miles a minute. 
Our young friend has expressed the cause of all our troubles and perplexities in a single word, poison. We looked at each other in amazed silence. No comment seemed to meet the situation. There is a mental inhibition by which such symptoms can be checked and controlled, said Challenger. I cannot expect to find it developed in all of you to the same point which it has reached in me, for I suppose that the strength of our different mental processes bears some proportion to each other. But no doubt it is appreciable even in our young friend here. After the little outburst of high spirits, which so alarmed my domestic, I sat down and reasoned with myself. I put it to myself that I had never before felt impelled to bite any of my household. The impulse had then been an abnormal one. In an instant I perceived the truth. My pulse upon examination was ten beats above the usual, and my reflexes were increased. I called upon my higher and saner self, the real G.E.C., seated serene and impregnable behind all mere molecular disturbance. I summoned him, I say, to watch the foolish mental tricks which the poison would play. I found that I was indeed the master— I could recognize and control a disordered mind. It was a remarkable exhibition of the victory of mind over matter, for it was a victory over that particular form of matter which is most intimately connected with mind. I might almost say that mind was at fault, and that personality controlled it. Thus, when my wife came downstairs, and I was impelled to slip behind the door and alarm her by some wild cry as she entered, I was able to stifle the impulse and to greet her with dignity and restraint. An overpowering desire to quack like a duck was met and mastered in the same fashion. Later, when I descended to order the car, and found Austin bending over it absorbed in repairs, I controlled my open hand even after I had lifted it, and refrained from giving him an experience which would possibly have caused him to follow in the steps of the housekeeper. On the contrary— I touched him on the shoulder, and ordered the car to be at the door in time to meet your train. At the present instant I am most forcibly tempted to take Professor Summerlee by that silly old beard of his, and to shake his head violently backwards and forwards. And yet, as you see, I am perfectly restrained. Let me commend my example to you. "'I'll look out for that buffalo,' said Lord John. "'And I for the football match.' "'It may be that you are right, Challenger,' said Summerlee in a chastened voice. "'I am willing to admit that my turn of mind is critical, rather than constructive, and that I am not a ready convert to any new theory, especially when it happens to be so unusual and fantastic as this one. However, as I cast my mind back over the events of the morning—' and as I reconsider the fatuous conduct of my companions, I find it easy to believe that some poison of an exciting kind was responsible for their symptoms. Challenger slapped his colleague good-humouredly upon the shoulder. "'We progress,' said he. "'Decidedly we progress.' "'And pray, sir,' asked Summerlee humbly, "'what is your opinion as to the present outlook?' With your permission, I will say a few words upon that subject. He seated himself upon his desk, 
his short, stumpy legs swinging in front of him. "'We are assisting at a tremendous and awful function. It is, in my opinion, the end of the world.' "'The end of the world!' Our eyes turned to the great bow window, and we looked out at the summer beauty of the countryside, the long slopes of heather, the great country-houses, the cosy farms, the pleasure-seekers upon the links. The end of the world! One had often heard the words, but the idea that they could ever have an immediate practical significance, that it should not be at some vague date, but now, to-day, that was a tremendous, a staggering thought. We were all struck solemn, and waited in silence for Challenger to continue. His overpowering presence and appearance lent such force to the solemnity of his words, that for a moment all the crudities and absurdities of the man vanished, and he loomed before us as something majestic and beyond the range of ordinary humanity. Then, to me at least, there came back the cheering recollection of how twice since we had entered the room he had roared with laughter. Surely, I thought, there are limits to mental detachment. The crisis cannot be so great, or so pressing, after all. "'You will conceive a bunch of grapes,' said he, "'which are covered by some infinitesimal but noxious bacillus. The gardener passes it through a disaffecting medium. It may be that he desires his grapes to be cleaner. It may be that he needs space to breed some fresh bacillus less noxious than the last.' He dips it into the poison, and they are gone. Our gardener is, in my opinion, about to dip the solar system, and the human bacillus, the little mortal vibrio which twisted and wriggled upon the outer rind of the earth, will in an instant be sterilized out of existence. Again there was silence. It was broken by the high trill of the telephone bell. There is one of our bacilli squeaking for help said he, with a grim smile. They are beginning to realize that their continued existence is not really one of the necessities of the universe. He was gone from the room for a minute or two. I remember that none of us spoke in his absence. The situation seemed beyond all words or comments. "'The medical officer of health for Brighton,' said he, when he returned. The symptoms are for some reason developing more rapidly upon the sea-level. Our seven hundred feet of elevation give us an advantage. Folks seem to have learned that I am the first authority upon the question. No doubt it comes from my letter in the Times. That was the mayor of a provincial town with whom I talked when we first arrived. You may have heard me upon the telephone. He seemed to put an entirely inflated value upon his own life. I helped him to readjust his ideas. Summerlee had risen and was standing by the window. His thin, bony hands were trembling with his emotion. "'Challenger,' said he earnestly, "'this thing is too serious for mere futile argument. Do not suppose that I desire to irritate you by any question I may ask, but I put it to you whether there may not be some fallacy in your information or in your reasoning. There is the sun shining as brightly as ever in the blue sky. There are the heather and the flowers and the birds. There are the folk enjoying themselves upon the golf links, and the labourers yonder cutting the corn. You tell us that they and we may be on the very brink of destruction, 
that this sunlit day may be that day of doom which the human race has so long awaited. So far as we know, you found this tremendous judgment upon what? Upon some abnormal lines in a spectrum, upon rumours from Sumatra, upon some curious personal excitement which we have discerned in each other. This latter symptom is not so marked but that you and we could, by a deliberate effort, control it. You need not stand on ceremony with us, Challenger. We have all faced death together before now. Speak out, and let us know exactly where we stand, and what, in your opinion, are our prospects for our future. It was a brave, good speech, a speech from that staunch and strong spirit which lay behind all the acidities and angularities of the old zoologist. Lord John rose and shook him by the hand. "'My sentiment to a tick,' said he. "'Now, Challenger, it's up to you to tell us where we are. We ain't nervous folk, as you know well, but when it comes to making a weekend visit and finding you've run full butt into the day of judgment, it wants a bit of explaining. What's the danger, and how much of it is there, and what are we going to do to meet it?' He stood, tall and strong, in the sunshine at the window, with his brown hand upon the shoulder of Summerlee. I was lying back in an armchair, an extinguished cigarette between my lips, in that sort of half-dazed state in which impressions become exceedingly distinct. It may have been a new phase of the poisoning, but the delirious promptings had all passed away, and were succeeded by an exceedingly languid and, at the same time, perceptive state of mind. I was a spectator. It did not seem to be any personal concern of mine. But here were three strong men at a great crisis, and it was fascinating to observe them. Challenger bent his heavy brows and stroked his beard before he answered. One could see that he was very carefully weighing his words. "'What was the last news when you left London?' he asked. I was at the Gazette office about ten, said I. There was a Reuter just come in from Singapore to the effect that the sickness seemed to be universal in Sumatra, and that the lighthouses had not been lit in consequence. Events have been moving somewhat rapidly since then, said Challenger, picking up his pile of telegrams. I am in close touch both with the authorities and with the press, so that news is converging upon me from all parts. There is, in fact, a general and very insistent demand that I should come to London. But I see no good end to be served. From the accounts, the poisonous effect begins with mental excitement. The rioting in Paris this morning is said to have been very violent, and the Welsh colliers are in a state of uproar. So far as the evidence to hand can be trusted, this stimulative stage, which varies much in races and in individuals, is succeeded by a certain exaltation and mental lucidity. I seem to discern some signs of it at our young friend here, which, after an appreciable interval, turns to coma, deepening rapidly into death. I fancy, so far as my toxicology carries me, that there are some vegetable nerve poisons. Datur, suggested Summerlee. Excellent, cried Challenger. It would make for scientific precision if we named our toxic agent. Let it be Deturon. 
To you, my dear Summerlee, belongs the honour, posthumous, alas, but none the less unique, of having given a name to the universal destroyer, the great gardener's disinfectant. The symptoms of Daturon, then, may be taken to be such as I indicate, that it will involve the whole world, and that no life can possibly remain behind, seems to me to be certain, since ether is a universal medium. Up to now it has been capricious in the places where it is attacked, but the difference is only a matter of a few hours, and it is like an advancing tide which covers one strip of sand and then another, running hither and thither in irregular streams, until at last it has submerged it all. There are laws at work in connection with the action and distribution of Daturon, which would have been of deep interest had the time at our disposal permitted us to study them. So far as I can trace them, here he glanced over his telegrams, the less developed races have been the first to respond to its influence. There are deplorable accounts from Africa, and the Australian Aborigines appear to have been already exterminated. The northern races have as yet shown greater resisting power than the southern. This, you see, is dated from Marseille, at 9.45 this morning. I give it to you verbatim. All night, delirious excitement throughout Provence. Tumult of fine growers at Nîmes. Socialistic upheaval at Toulon. Sudden illness attended by coma attacked population this morning. Pes foudroyant. Great numbers of dead in the streets. Paralysis of business and universal chaos. An hour later came the following, from the same source. We are threatened with utter extermination. Cathedrals and churches full to overflowing. The dead outnumber the living. It is inconceivable and horrible. Decease seems to be painless, but swift and inevitable. There is a similar telegram from Paris, where the development is not yet as acute. India and Persia appear to be utterly wiped out. The Slavonic population of Austria is down, while the Teutonic has hardly been affected. Speaking generally, the dwellers upon the plains and upon the seashore seem, so far as my limited information goes, to have felt the effects more rapidly than those inland or on the heights. Even a little elevation makes a considerable difference, and perhaps if there be a survivor of the human race, he will again be found upon the summit of some Ararat. Even our own little hill may presently prove to be a temporary island amid a sea of disaster. But at the present rate of advance, a few short hours will submerge us all. Lord John Roxton wiped his brow. "'What beats me?' said he, is how you could sit there laughing with that stack of telegrams under your hand. I've seen death as often as most folk, but universal death. It's awful. As to the laughter, said Challenger, you will bear in mind that, like yourselves, I have not been exempt from the stimulating cerebral effects of the etheric poison. But as to the horror with which universal death appears to inspire you— I would put it to you that it is somewhat exaggerated. If you were sent to sea alone in an open boat to some unknown destination, your heart might well sink within you. The isolation, the uncertainty, would oppress you. But if your voyage were made in a goodly ship, 
which bore within it all your relations and your friends, you would feel that, however uncertain your destination might still remain, you would at least have one common and simultaneous experience which would hold you to the end in the same close communion. A lonely death may be terrible, but a universal one, as painless as this would appear to be, is not, in my judgment, a matter for apprehension. Indeed, I could sympathize with the person who took the view that the horror lay in the idea of surviving when all that is learned, famous, and exalted had passed away. "'What, then, do you propose to do?' asked Summerlee, who had for once nodded his assent to the reasoning of his brother-scientist. "'To take our lunch,' said Challenger, as the boom of a gong sounded through the house. "'We have a cook whose omelettes are only excellent by her cutlets. We can but trust that no cosmic disturbance has dulled her excellent abilities. My Schwartzberger of ninety-six must also be rescued.' so far as our earnest and united efforts can do it, from what would be a deplorable waste of a great vintage. He levered his great bulk off the desk, upon which he had sat while he announced the doom of the planet. Come, said he, if there is little time left, there is the more need that we should spend it in sober and reasonable enjoyment. And indeed, it proved to be a very merry meal. It is true that we could not forget our awful situation. The full solemnity of the event loomed ever at the back of our minds and tempered our thoughts. But surely it is the soul which has never faced death which shies strongly from it at the end. To each of us men it had, for one great epoch in our lives, been a familiar presence. As to the lady, she leaned upon the strong guidance of her mighty husband, and was well content to go whither his path might lead. The future was our fate. The present was our own. We passed it in goodly comradeship and gentle merriment. Our minds were, as I have said, singularly lucid. Even I struck sparks at times. As to Challenger, he was wonderful. Never have I so realized the elemental greatness of the man, the sweep and power of his understanding. Summerlee drew him on with his chorus of sub-acid criticism, while Lord John and I laughed at the contest, and the lady, her hand upon his sleeve, controlled the bellowings of the philosopher. Life, death, fate, the destiny of man, these were the stupendous subjects of that memorable hour, made vital by the fact that as the meal progressed, strange, sudden exultations in my mind and tinglings in my limbs proclaimed that the invisible tide of death was slowly and gently rising around us. Once I saw Lord John put his hand suddenly to his eyes, and once Summerlee dropped back for an instant in his chair. Each breath we breathed was charged with strange forces, and yet our minds were happy and at ease. Presently Austin laid the cigarettes upon the table and was about to withdraw. "'Austin,' said his master. "'Yes, sir?' "'I thank you for your faithful service.' A smile stole over the servant's gnarled face. "'I've done my duty, sir.' "'I'm expecting the end of the world to-day, Austin.' "'Yes, sir. What time, sir?' "'I can't say, Austin. Before evening.' "'Very good, sir.' 
The taciturn Austin saluted and withdrew. Challenger lit a cigarette, and, drawing his chair closer to his wife's, he took her hand in his. "'You know how matters stand, dear,' said he. "'I have explained it also to our friends here. You're not afraid, are you?' "'It won't be painful, George.' "'No more than laughing gas at the dentist's. Every time you have had it, you have practically died.' "'But that is a pleasant sensation.' So may death be. The worn-out bodily machine can't record its impression, but we know the mental pleasure which lies in a dream or a trance. Nature may build a beautiful door, and hang it with many a gauzy and shimmering curtain to make an entrance to the new life for our wandering souls. In all my probings of the actual, I have always found wisdom and kindness at the core, and if ever the frightened mortal needs tenderness, it is surely as he makes the passage perilous from life to life. No, Summerlee, I will have none of your materialism, for I, at least, am too great a thing to end in mere physical constituents, a packet of salts and three bucketfuls of water. Here, here, and he beat his great head with his huge hairy fist, there is something which uses matter, but is not of it, something which might destroy death, but which death can never destroy. "'Talkin' of death,' said Lord John, "'I'm a Christian of sorts, but it seems to me there was something mighty natural in those ancestors of ours who were buried with their axes and bows and arrows and the like, same as if they were livin' on just the way as they had used to. I don't know,' he added, looking round the table in a shamefaced way, that I wouldn't feel more homely myself if I was put away with my old four-fifty express, and the fowlin' piece, the shorter one with the rubbered stock, and a clip or two of cartridges. Just a fool's fancy, of course, but there it is. How does it strike you, Herr Professor? Well, said Summerlee, since you ask my opinion, it strikes me as an indefensible throwback to the Stone Age, or before it. I am of the twentieth century myself, and would wish to die like a reasonable civilized man. I don't know that I am more afraid of death than the rest of you, for I am an oldish man, and come what may, I can't have very much longer to live. But it is all against my nature to sit waiting without a struggle, like a sheep for the butcher. It is quite certain, Challenger, that there is nothing we can do. To save us, nothing, said Challenger. To prolong our lives a few hours, and thus to see the evolution of this mighty tragedy before we are actually involved in it, that may prove to be within my powers. I have taken certain steps. The oxygen? Exactly, the oxygen. But what can oxygen effect in the face of a poisoning of the ether? There is not a greater difference in quality between a brick-bat and a gas than there is between oxygen and ether. They are different planes of matter. They cannot impinge upon one another. Come, Challenger, you could not defend such a proposition. My good Summerlee, this etheric poison is most certainly influenced by material agents. We see it in the methods and distribution of the outbreak. We should not a priori have expected it, but it is undoubtedly a fact. 
Hence I am strongly of opinion that a gas like oxygen, which increases the vitality and the resisting power of the body, would be extremely likely to delay the action of what you have so happily named the Dacheron. It may be that I am mistaken, but I have every confidence in the correctness of my reasoning. Well, said Lord John, if we've got to sit sucking at those tubes like so many babies with their bottles, I'm not taking any. There will be no need for that, Challenger answered. We have made arrangements. It is to my wife that you chiefly owe it, that her boudoir shall be made as airtight as is practicable, with matting and varnished paper. Good heavens, Challenger, you don't suppose you can keep out ether with varnished paper? Really, my worthy friend, you are a trifle perverse in missing the point. It is not to keep out the ether that we have gone to such trouble. It is to keep in the oxygen. I trust that if we can ensure an atmosphere hyper-oxygenated to a certain point, we may be able to retain our senses. I had two tubes of the gas, and you have brought me three more. It is not much, but it is something. How long would they last? I have not an idea. We will not turn them on until our symptoms become unbearable. Then we shall dole the gas out as it is urgently needed. It may give us some hours, possibly even some days, on which we may look out upon a blasted world. Our own fate is delayed to that extent, and we will have the very singular experience, we five, of being in all probability the absolute rear-guard of the human race upon its march into the unknown. Perhaps you will be kind enough now to give me a hand with the cylinders. It seems to me that the atmosphere already grows somewhat more oppressive. End of chapter